Welcome to Episode 5 of the podcast of Lifeliner, The Judy Taylor Story. I am the author, Shireen Chichiboy. Chapter 5 garbage bag dressings. It's been 13 days since Judy's last meal. Her body has cannibalized her fat and muscle for nourishment, but it's not enough to feed her brain. She speaks slowly with effort. Her liver is sluggish. Her skin is inelastic. It and the whites of her eyes are yellow. Her urine is tea-colored. She is starving to death. At home, Gigi considers the problem. What food do people require? How best can I help her? She needs something for life, something to mimic real food, not something that will make do for a couple of weeks. A normal diet comprises protein, carbohydrates, fat, vitamins, trace elements, and electrolytes. That's the combination she needs. Yet he wonders how he'll give her fat. American and Swedish researchers have been worrying over which fat is best for IV infusion and whether one needs fat at all. The Americans shun fat for the product that they had devised had proven toxic, and they believe it makes the liver fatty. But the latter doesn't make sense to him. Fat is in our diet for a reason, and Judy cannot go a lifetime without it. He rereads the papers published by Professor Arvid Retland of the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. Retland has developed soybean oil-based IV fat emulsion, which has been used in Europe for several years. He decides that he will use this fat emulsion. Still, he wonders, Will it lead to fatty liver? He has a theory about that. Now for the next decision. Which trace elements shall he give Judy? He pulls out animal studies from his tack of literature. Because veterinary science is often ahead of human science, these studies are often more informative. He peruses his stack of journals late into the night until he's satisfied that he has a viable plan. He retires to bed. Early the next morning of Wednesday, October the 7th, Gigi visits Dieter Bonn, the hospital pharmacist in the basement of TGH. They discuss what to feed Judy. Bonn had turned the hospital pharmacy into a sterile production center for sterile solutions when Gigi and Langer had first started working with hyperalimentation, or nutritional IV solution, for their post-operative, short-term patients. Thus, he is already set up to create Judy's alimentation that day. They decide to customize commercial solutions by injecting the nutrients they specifically want into the ready-made bags. This method will speed up the process of manufacturing Judy's alimentation. Satisfied that Bond has things under control, Gigi leaves for G South, the ward Judy is on, to arrange for a way to get the alimentation into Judy's veins. Since the fiasco with the Scribner shunt, Gigi has reverted to using temporary catheters because they're the fastest and most proven way to infuse alimentation. But these catheters are problematic. Because they're made of plastic, they not only fall out easily, but they also stimulate tissue reaction, allowing clots to form on the inside of the tubing, clogging it up. The catheters become unusable after only a few days and need to be replaced. If this feeding succeeds, they will have to look for a better type of line. But that's in the future. For now, Gigi calls in a respirologist to insert the plastic catheter. The respirologist swabs Judy's chest and punctures it as she lies semi-conscious in her hospital bed. 
He feeds the thin, clear tubing into her vein until its tip reaches her heart. Suddenly, Judy cannot breathe. She sucks air in and out, in and out, in and out. Swiftly, he stabs her chest, slips a tube through the hole and down between her ribs to the area around her lungs, and attaches it to a machine to suck out the air that's squeezing her lung and pushing her trachea to the right. He leaves the tube in until the hole heals shut. Her trachea takes until 7 o'clock in the evening to shift back into place. Still, her temporary catheter is in, and he tells the resident that they can start running the alimentation, which has already arrived on the floor from the pharmacy. Pat knows the routine from their experiments on post-operative patients. She hangs alimentation bags on Judy's IV pole. She enrobes them in big black blood pressure cuffs. She connects the bags one to the other with tubing, leaving the last tube hanging down its end capped. She pressurizes the cuffs, lets the alimentation flow down to the end cap, pulls the pole closer to Judy, uncaps the end piece of tubing, and connects it to the catheter sticking out of Judy's chest after first ensuring it is clear of debris. She watches the alimentation flow down the tubing and into Judy for several minutes. Satisfied that there are no clots, she leaves. Later, she comes in to find Judy smiling. She has a nice buzz going. Pat smiles back at Judy's questioning face. It's the alcohol, Pat explains. Then she tells Judy a story. Gigi's lab partner at the University of Toronto, ABR, as everyone calls Alan Bruce Robertson, was looking for subjects to test how alcohol in IV form affects humans. Pat had volunteered. She wanted to be a part of Gigi's fascinating research. ABR asked her about her drinking habits to determine her suitability as a test subject before he signed her up. Unfortunately, she'd made the mistake of thinking her definition of being a drinker was the same as his. And if she'd also known that ABR starts his mornings boiling his coffee on the stove and drinking it straight away in one gulp and prescribes the most wickedly effective cough syrups, she might have had second thoughts. As it was, he hooked her up, and she was soon giggling and lolling about. There was no way she could get home on her own. And so he loaded her up into the back of a station wagon and drove her home. She was sick for a week. Between the story, the buzz, and the demerol, Judy laughs helplessly. But a few hours later, she has a hangover. She and Pat agree that she cannot go through life drunk. But for now, the alcohol acts as a little calorie packer, and Gigi will find a better solution down the road. After she finishes her story, Pat gets up and rubs Judy's legs. She moves them up and down, bending and straightening first her left leg and then her right in order to get the blood circulating. It soothes Judy and she falls asleep. Pat contemplates that horrid wound. How are they going to dress that big hole so that it stops leaking? She talks it over with some of the other nurses and they come up with a novel idea. They'll dress her in garbage bags. Since it's time to change Judy's soaked and stained dressing, they'll do it now. Pat carefully peels off the old dressings. She cleans the wound and packs in some gauze. One of the nurses has found some green garbage bags. Pat lays these over her stomach and over her dressings. They slide off. She asks another nurse to get some special tape. And while she holds the garbage bags in place, the nurse straps them on with three or four adhesive straps, which the nurses then lace up. Judy wakes up, looks down at what they've done, and giggles. She's wearing a green garbage bag corset. The nurses laugh with her and tell her that, since she no longer leaks, they can move her to a chair. This will keep her muscles and blood moving. They set Judy up, swing her legs over the side of the bed, pause to let her catch her breath, and then help her stand up. With Pat on one side and a nurse on the other, they coax her to head toward the chair. She's so tired and in pain that she doesn't want to move. 
They encourage her and gently, step by step, walk her to the chair and lower her down. Pat sits beside her and talks to her while holding her hand. It comforts Judy. Judy looks out the window and sees a tree. The tree that Cliff will come to park under when he visits her every night. Its vibrant leaves against the deep blue autumn sky connect her back to life. She breathes it in. Her body slowly sinks in on itself. Pat pats her hand to tell her it's time to return to bed and undergo her hourly dressing change. Once Judy is back in bed, the nurses put on a new garbage bag dressing, prop a sheet tent over her torso to give her some dignity, check her alimentation, and then leave her to sleep for a bit. She sleeps fitfully. Cliff walks in, the first visit of many, afraid of what he will find. He's not yet used to this new reality. He sits next to her and takes her hand in his. He broods. Gigi had told him that if Judy can survive all the surgeries to come, then he can probably keep her alive on his feeding system. But Cliff wonders what the future will bring. The evening drags until it's time for him to return home. Judy wakes up to see Cindy, Julie, and Miriam climbing up and down the tree outside her window, grabbing the branches to pull themselves up or swing down. Every so often, they stop, point at Judy, and laugh. Horror and shame fill her and she starts to cry. Suddenly, they rise up at the end of her bed, peeping at her. Then, just as suddenly, they disappear. She looks around fearfully, but she's free of the hallucination. She falls asleep. You have been listening to Lifeliner, the Judy Taylor story, a biography on a Canadian medical pioneer who made artificial feeding possible, podcast by the author Shireen Boy, one chapter at a time. Music used for this podcast is I Like It Like That by Steph Sachs and The King Is Back by Echoed, licensed under Creative Commons. They can be found at dig.ccmixter.org under Instrumental Music for Film and Video. I hope you enjoyed this chapter. For more information or to leave a comment, please check out the website at ggboy.ca or the Twitter feed at Shireen J. So until next time, thank you for listening to Lifeliner. I'm Shireen Gigi Boy.